organic pure feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic mechanical. All right, folks. Welcome back to Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele, and you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you could find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. So welcome back to the program. Last week we had Professor Andrew Basevich on. Today we have no guest, purposely, just other things that I wanted to talk about and mention. Um, I don't know, for those who are living in the Great Lakes region, and I saw earlier my friend Ramon had uh, mentioned that he wasn't uh, able to run on the beach this morning down in Mississippi because it was storming like crazy down there. It's been nothing but rain here in Michigan City and on the Great Lakes. So it's a little dreary, a little gray and not much energy out and about in the streets. Um, there have been tons of meetings and all kinds of events going on, but generally everyone seems to kind of be like, ah, eh, we're ready for summer. And I feel the same way. <laughs> and uh, But at the same time, I want these days to go slowly because we just opened our new art space here. Well, art, let me back up. As I mentioned before, we have a space that we are going to utilize here in Michigan City. I'm actually sitting in the space right now looking out the window. Uh, the cars going by here on Franklin kicking up all the puddles that are left everywhere in the street after five days of straight rain. And the space is called Park Politics, Art, Roots, Culture. That's P-A-R-C. Park at 1713 which gives you our address. So if you're in the neighborhood, stop on by. We don't have a coffee maker yet, so I apologize for that. But we will have a coffee maker soon enough. So for those of you who are just looking for somewhere to chill out, stop by, see what we're doing, see if you can lend a hand over the next eight weeks, we're going to do, at least right now, uh, tentative opening weekend is going to be Memorial Day weekend. We don't have a Facebook page. We don't have a Twitter page. We don't have an Instagram page. There is no event page set up for that event yet. Um, we wanted to get some basic things done over the next four weeks. And this month is extremely hectic. There's a ton of stuff going on. I'll mention some of the events at the end of the hour, but it's truly amazing the amount of things that are happening. Again, my concern is that those events are sort of one-off events that take place and they don't fit into maybe a broader campaign or a broader strategy or political program, uh, either locally, regionally, at the state level, at the national level, and so on and so forth. So those are the concerns. I mean, there's, it's great to have these events. And a lot of these groups are really in their infancy. There's groups that have been around for a while doing work, but... And their influence is limited, and their capacity to bring in new people 
potential activists and so on seems also limited. Maybe through no fault of their own, but also maybe because of their organizing practices. I mean, I live in a disproportionately union-dense region, and virtually none of the activism or protests or events concerning Trump have been organized by any of the unions, not even really well attended by union members. And I guess that's not out of the ordinary, and that's not that surprising for people who know how unions operate in this area. But it is also quite disappointing. On the other hand, we have a ton of people who aren't getting paid to organize events, who don't rely on, say, money from big foundations or so on to hold these events. They're just doing it. They're out there putting in the time day in and day out, and they're doing good work. So I was going to talk about Russia today a little bit blowback and what that means. I think most people who are listening to this already know. If you don't know, there was a bomb blast in Russia, in St. Petersburg on the metro, at a metro station on a metro train. I believe 11 people were pronounced dead, dozens injured. I'm going to try and find it right now, what the updates are. What's amazing to me, I mentioned this earlier on social media, what's quite amazing to me is the way in which the U.S. mainstream media can have very serious and very reasonable discussions about blowback and the consequences of those sort of actions, um, the consequences of unintended but expected consequences of overseas military engagements, that there would be a response. And it's, you know, here I put on CNN for as long as I can endure it today. And that was about 10 minutes. And it, But within those 10 minutes, it was amazing because the analysts on CNN were having very important and very reasonable discussions about the consequences of military actions abroad, yet they were talking about it from the perspective of the Russians, whereas the United States has been much more militaristic, violent than Russia, especially in recent decades, was sort of left off the table. We don't talk about the U.S. We don't talk about U.S. militarism. It's almost the most blasphemous thing uh, political analysts can bring up in the United States. And... Yet here we are, sitting in the belly of the empire, uh, criticizing Russian foreign policy, which we should. I mean, at least those with decent intentions and, and, and good politics and a sense of morals and ethics and so on, and they should critique uh, U.S. foreign policy. But the irony is not lost on anyone <laughs> when U.S. analysts explain how blowback works in the Russian context, but fail to mention how blowback works in the American context. So this is from foxnews.com. Two people were believed to be behind the deadly attack in the subway in St. Petersburg, Russia, planting a total of two bombs, 
one of which exploded. State media reported Monday as police raced to find the killers. At least 10 people were killed and some 43 others were wounded. One train explo- or one bomb exploded on a train while crews disabled a second device before it could explode at a nearby station. Police believed separate suspects planted each bomb. And go on to mention that both bombs were filled with shrapnel. The unexploded device was rigged with up to 2.2 pounds of explosives. A security camera spotted a man who may have left the deadly bomb in a bag on a train. An unidentified source told Interfax. The Fontanka News Agency released a photo of a bearded man dressed in black claiming he was wanted in connection with the blast. The 2.20 p.m. explosion rocked the train between the Technology Institute station and the Sinaya Square station, Russia's National Anti-Terrorist Committee said. Photos and video from one station appeared to show wounded victims on a smoke-filled platform and a train car with a door blown out. Frantic commuters reached through the windows shouting, call an ambulance, call an ambulance. Well, one thing is clear. The primary antagonism here, the primary cause of this death and destruction and violence is surely not religion. And so this is also, I think, a part of the conversation that we should have. Um, I think other commentators, people on the left, try and tie everything back to capitalism. I think there's a way to do that. The question is, uh, is this urge for people to commit terrorist attacks directly connected to, uh, say, the economic stress that the world is feeling? Or that, say, people in the global south are especially feeling. I don't think that that's the case. I do think that there's a very clear and legitimate argument that can be made that as states like Russia and the United States continue to conduct so-called counterterrorism operations and bomb and strafe and occupy and arm different regimes in different nations, that there will indeed be consequences. Today's blast in St. Petersburg is the latest example. And as Andrew Basevich mentioned last week, um, we've been remiss as a nation to not have and to not hold a serious debate, public debate, on a massive scale about who, quote-unquote, hates us And, of course, answering the question, why? Once you answer those two questions, then the next question becomes, how can we prevent future terrorist attacks? And as the great Noam Chomsky constantly has has constantly reminded Americans and others, the best way to prevent terrorist attacks is to stop committing terrorist attacks. And this sort of gets us to the, you know, concept of the state, the legitimacy of the state. 
what institutions in society have the ability and the power to take people's lives and at what cost and how are those decisions made. Indeed, it is the most important decision that any individual or any entity will make, namely the question of whether or not to take someone else's life. Who has the right to do that? When? How? And why? Those are things that sort of operate under a set of assumptions that many people in society disagree with. I think if you were to ask people in today's society, well, depends where you are and who you're talking to, of course. Let me put it this way. I think that there would be a significant number of people in the United States who are opposed to the idea that the state should be able to take someone's life, whether that be a state-sanctioned execution, say, in a prison, whether that be the police taking someone's life, uh, the military taking people's lives abroad, shooting hellfire missiles from five miles, 15 miles in the sky, I'm sorry, five miles or whatever the hell, 15,000 feet in the air. You know, who makes those decisions and how? But oftentimes also those things are taken for granted. That, well, yes, the, the state just has the power to do that. So what can we do about it? There's not much we can do about it. You just kind of have to accept it. Well, I would argue that it's unacceptable. I would also argue that if we want to have a decent conversation about how to prevent future violence, that we're going to have to put everything on the table. And it's going to have to be acceptable to say things that stray from the orthodoxies of our time. In the mainstream media, of course, one of those orthodoxies is to avoid at all costs any discussion of U.S. empire and militarism. And as I mentioned, we talked about this a lot uh, during the last week's program with Professor Basevich. I mean, look, folks, uh, terror, violence is a horrific thing. We talk a lot about violence on this program for good reason. Um, violence has shifted and shaped the way that I look at the world and the way I participate within this world uh, to a severe degree. And I think that's the case for people not just veterans or people who have been to war but or been through war, experienced war, but I think also people who have been in extremely violent situations could be in a domestic situation that's extremely violent. The way that that violence works, the way violence works within that context is often not too dissimilar from the way that violence works, say, on the geopolitical scale. Violence is extremely effective at achieving short-term goals. That's the, co the caveat. So, yes, violence is extremely effective. However, that effectiveness is primarily, primarily takes place in the short-term. In the long-term, certain levels of violence will produce, I think, unwanted results. And it creates a lot of trauma, it creates a lot of distrust, it creates animosity, 
So if in the short term, say you're being bullied, let's use this on a subjective individual level. So in the short term, let's say you're being bullied and the best way to get that bully to stop is to punch him in the nose. Okay. Or in the jar or wherever. So you, so you immediately respond and you punch this person. And in the short term, this person stops beating you up or stops messing with you, stops bullying you or your friend or your loved ones. However, if you continue to beat this person up and even say maybe even in that moment, say maybe that singular moment, it was just too much violence. So you maybe you just, you know, maybe you didn't just punch this person once or twice just to get them to stop being violent towards you. Maybe you beat this person to a bloody pulp. Well, in the short term, you've stopped that person from punching you or from beating you up, from harassing you. However, in the long term, you could have potentially created an even worse enemy. Not just, say, from this person, but what were there other people around when that happened? Did you give other people the idea that it's okay to beat someone to a pulp who was bullying you? And if that is okay, are you prepared to deal with the consequences? And how much violence are you going to use? So once that person bullies you, or let's say the person in the case of, say, the people of Iraq or Afghanistan, who had never done anything to the people in the United States or threaten our way of life or threaten our, uh, our lives with violence and so on, so let's say you walk up to someone in the street and you just punch someone who you think might eventually at some point harass you or bully you. And you think that by approaching this person or by punching them or by responding in such a manner that you will prevent future violence. Uh, but you know what you've done. You've created even more violence in the, sh in the long term. Because at some point, even the even people who have been so beat down and disempowered, disenfranchised, bullied, ignored, alienated, those people will respond in kind. There will be a response. You cannot socially, culturally, economically, politically, ethnically alienate people on a massive scale and not expect some of those people to lash out, and often in very violent ways. That's the same on the global scale, the same in the, in the geopolitical realm, where the United States is constantly bullying and bombing and beating people up and disciplining populations and countries and people, torturing And it's amazing. You know, you sit here in the United States, you look out your window, you see the cars rolling by, see people going to work, see people filling up their tanks and taking their kids to school. And it all seems very normal. There's no signs of war. And that way, it's a lot different than Orwell's 1984. I mean, there's a lot that's much different than that book. The book's on my mind because I have to give a talk tomorrow. So I'll, I'll mention that a little bit towards the end of the program. But 
tomorrow I'm giving a talk at the Hobart Theater. Actually, I'll just mention it right now. <laughs> so uh, this is from IndieWire.com. Independent movie theaters nationwide will screen 1984 to protest Donald Trump. A group of independent movie theaters, including the Alamo Draft House IFC Center and Film Society of Lincoln Center, has come together to protest Donald Trump, specifically taking aim at his alleged proposed cuts to cultural programs, including the entire elimination of the National Endowment for the Arts. On April 4th, over 100 participating theaters throughout the United States and one in Canada will screen the film 1984 based on the 1949 novel by George Orwell. The story centers around Winston Smith, a member of the Outer Party. Winston works in the records department in the Ministry of Truth. His job is to rewrite and distort history as a way to rebel and escape Big Brother's tyranny, at least in his own mind. He begins a diary, which is an act punishable by death. The group of movie theaters chose April 4th to screen this film because that is the date in which Winston starts writing on his diary. In any case, uh, the folks from the Hobart Theater asked if I would participate, and of course I said yes. Let me give you the address here for people who are interested the Hobart Art Theater I believe this is the place hopefully <laughs> okay so yes the Hobart Art Theater uh, what's the address here 230 Main Street Hobart Indiana it's a movie theater the art house was built in 1941 and has been a part of Hobart's history ever since so I really look forward to this. I think George Orwell's uh, this this showing of 1984 allows us an opportunity to talk about any number of things. Well, actually, this uh, this site says that there's over 200 art house movie theaters across the country in 185 cities in 44 states, plus five locations in Canada, one in England, one in Sweden. One in Holland and one in Croatia. Well, that's pretty cool. That's especially nice because John Hurt had just recently died. And of course he stars in the film as Winston. Yeah, so this is going to be great. So anyway, I'll be giving a about a 10 or a 15 minute introduction to the film. And afterward I will be doing a Q&A. I'm looking forward to the talk. I'm actually put quite a bit of time into the talk. I was going to just wing it and get up there and talk about things, but you know, everything doesn't have to be so uh, desperate and immediate. So I had originally thought, you know, why talk about ideology and film and literature and all this when we have so much happening and, you know, I would rather focus on people would rather me focus on the issues or talk about the stuff that is happening today with Trump and all the rest of it in this sort of desperate attempt to stop Trump's agenda. And I do think that that's important and I think that that's very worthwhile. But at the same time, I, I would argue that one of the reasons we have Trump 
in the first place is because people in the United States and particularly activists and organizers who are already involved don't spend enough time thinking and reading and exploring new ideas and being creative and debating ideas. There's not enough of that taking place. And it's interesting because I also hear from people all the time, well, people just need to do something. We just need people to do things. You know, people, we just need people to act. Well, we have a lot of that. There's not a day that goes by now in all of Northwest Indiana that you cannot find an event. That's quite crazy. That's where I live. Now, that's taking place around the country. I know that because I'm looking at the events and speaking with my friends who organize from the East Coast to the West Coast, from the South to the North and overseas and beyond. Well, I guess there is no beyond overseas, but you get my point. There's a lot happening on any given day, pretty much anywhere you live, you could find an event within driving distance. That's pretty amazing. That being said, as I mentioned earlier, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are building an effective movement or movements or effective organizations for the future or potential alternatives. That does mean that people are engaged and that's good. But it again doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be effective. Those are two different things with plenty of people who are engaged, but why are we engaged? What are, what are we fighting for? Not only exactly what are we fighting for, but generally, conceptually, what are we what are we fighting for? And what kind of systems, what kind of institutions, what kind of society and culture do we want to live in? Those are the important and interesting conversations. I mean, the important, interesting conversations are not, is Neil Gorsuch or whatever this guy's name is a uh, nut? Of course he's a nut. He's a reactionary right-wing lunatic who deserves the very worst that life has to offer. Hopefully, someday, he's locked in a cell. He should be locked in a cell solely for his decision surrounding the what has now become the frozen trucker case where he ruled in favor of a company that fired a trucker who was freezing to death on the side of a highway. So all of the talk and all of the bantering and so on about judicial ethics and the, the honor of the institution and the Supreme court. I mean, like most institutions in society, the Supreme Court deserves nothing but criticism. It should be drastically overhauled and reformed and or abolished. And a new institution should take its place. If that's where you're at, that's that's where I that's I want to hang out with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to explore ideas with you. I want to work with you to implement those ideas in the real world. Yes. But if your idea is, well, you know, we should respect these institutions because there's a long history of these institutions and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I have no respect for any of these institutions. I mean, you have to respect the fact that these institutions have lasted as long as they have in the United States. That's maybe a testament to the power of these institutions. But I do not think that's a testament to the efficacy of these institutions. If by sort of judging the efficacy you're, you're looking beyond just simply an institution's ability to stick around for a long time. 
a lot of people learned a lot about our institutions in the United States during 2016, during the primaries especially. You know, tons of people who, Democrat Party voters who didn't know what superdelegates were. Well, that's good. That's a good learning experience. You know, a lot of people who didn't understand the primary process, didn't understand the Electoral College, didn't understand how the parties function at the national level, so the RNC and the DNC. A lot of people simply didn't understand a lot. And that's okay. All of us were there at one point. The important part is how do we move forward? How do we take those lessons and use them today? Unfortunately, uh, I see a lot more criticism of Russia and hacking and RT and all the rest than I do a serious discussion and critique of the many institutions that allowed Trump to get elected in the first place. You know, the liberal class, the failing and ineffective union movement, uh, the Democratic Party, of course, uh, neoliberalism and so on. I, the, we almost have stepped backwards. I mean, I've seen a, di a digression and a regression, not just on social media, but in the real world, showing up to events, talking with people. I, I heard much more interesting conversations taking place during the primaries than I heard or than I'm hearing now. You know, now a big portion of the conversation, as I think many people, including myself, assumed would happen if Trump was elected, is basically now focused on getting simply getting Trump out of office, getting the Republicans out and electing the Dems. What's going to be interesting as time goes on is to what degree can the Democratic Party tap into this fear of Trump to get more Democrats elected? And how many people just aren't buying it anymore? It'll be interesting to see in 2018. 2018, for that reason alone, will be extremely interesting. You know, can the Democratic Party pull people back in to vote for it simply because people are completely frightened and scared of Trump? Or... Even though people are frightened and scared of Trump, will they still just kind of stay home and say, well, screw it. There's no reason to vote for the Dems or I'm not inspired by them or I'm not just going to show up and vote for them because Trump is that bad. That that will be interesting to see how that plays out. At least in my mind. And, and then, you know, moving, thinking about this current debate about the Supreme Court. The, again, the last thing I'll say is that I think like superdelegates or the Electoral College or any number of institutions in, that dominate today's society, the Supreme Court, again, is an antiquated institution that continues to haunt us with horrific decisions and like the Citizens United decision. And these eight or nine largely men, but also a few women, are capable of drastically reconfiguring American society. And talk about an all, sort of the ultimate elitist institution. Mm, yes, us, us nine will make decisions for the entire society. Mm -hmm. It's uh, <laughs> to me that is those are the true deplorables. Yeah, not Trump's uh, mainly ignorant supporters, but the true deplorables are these people who sit around and. 
their black robes making decisions for us lowly proles. That dynamic is what I'd like to focus on tomorrow for tomorrow's event at the Hobart Theater. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not that big of a fan of Orwell, and I'm not one of these literature buffs who, oh, you know, George Orwell was born here, and he hung out with these people, and he was influenced by these writers. That's not my thing. I mean, I'm interested in ideas. You know, what kind of ideas did Orwell have? What kind of interesting insights and reflections did he espouse back then? And how can they help us better understand today and better understand our place in history and so on? Those are interesting questions. But to focus in on Orwell, and I know there's actually a lot of my my friends on the left don't like Orwell for a number of reasons. I think he was a snitch on some level, which deserves scrutiny. I think all snitches deserve scrutiny. And... So anyway, and because of that, there's a lot of people on the left who just straight up can't stand Orwell. There's other people on the left who tried to reclaim Orwell, especially in light of Trump's victory. I've seen a couple uh, articles in Jacobin and elsewhere sort of laying claim to Orwell's work. But he had a lot of interesting things to say about a lot of different topics. I mean, I'm reading uh, what edition this is. This is the uh, Penguin Classic edition of Orwell Essays, and I'm about three quarters of the way through it. But, you know, I was taking notes about some of the things that he uh, talked at length about in, in his essays, and he broached almost every topic you can imagine. Talking about dehumanization and racism, ideology and politics, perpetual war, poverty and literature, Charles Dickens generational divides, his ideas on World War I and communism. It's all very interesting and worthwhile. As I think a lot of uh, people's work is. I mean, even the people who we don't necessarily agree with. I mean, so in researching Orwell and his work, I've come across a lot of Christopher Hitchens Hitchens, of course, is a total scumbag for what he did after 9-11 and the the shift in his politics, providing justification for Bush's wars and the faux uh, war on terror, his racism and xenophobia are, of course, deplorable. But all of that being said, like a lot of really terrible people. He actually had some very interesting things to say on a number of topics. Atheism, of course, being the most famous and Islam and so on. But, and I wouldn't say that those are important or interesting reflections, but they were quite influential. Anyway, he had a lot to say about Orwell. I've watched some of his lectures and talks and interviews about 1984 and, and, and Orwell's work, and I, th- I thought some of them were quite useful. So, yeah, I'm just kind of drifting. I uh, <laughs> was thinking about all kinds of different issues as I'm thinking about Orwell now and where he stands today in history. As far as tomorrow's event is concerned, I simply hope that there's a good crowd. 
when you put a lot of work into something uh, like a talk or a presentation or a song or an album or whatever, a painting, piece of poetry, sometimes you do it for yourself. Sometimes that's all that's needed. In fact, a lot of times you're only doing it for yourself. And really, if you're doing it for other people inherently, I would would imagine that that's not a productive path. But in the case of this talk, you know, I had been asked specifically to talk about Orwell's work, give a intro to this film. And so I wasn't really doing this on my own. I didn't take it upon myself to learn more about Orwell and just so happened to spend hours and hours thinking about how to frame a talk about Orwell. But since someone else asked me and because we're doing this for a an event that's connected to a series of international events. I hope there's a good crowd. I hope it's interesting and lively. I hope people came to talk and debate. And If they did, I think we'll have a hell of a time. So anyway, moving away from Orwell, th- there were a few other things that I wanted to mention on today's program. So I was again informed of another public-private partnership that's taking place even here in in Michigan City. And the reason I think that these local issues are important, not just because it affects us immediately locally, but I think that these issues are important because they allow a national audience to think about broad political, economic, social, cultural phenomena, but to articulate those issues and those phenomena in a way that can highlight something that people can kind of touch or imagine. And I think it's hard to imagine national campaigns at times. I think it's hard to imagine global political issues at times. And I think if we can use local events as a way to educate people about the larger events, that to me seems to be the function of a local campaign. It's not, there's many different functions as I'm looking at this uh, dry erase board here in the studio, in the park space. I have all kinds of internal, external functions of a campaign and so on, but Let's take a example here in the Great Lakes region or here in the dunes in northwest Indiana. We had an area in Chesterton that was a public public park for the public dunes National Lakeshore and a building that had been uh, – there was some kind of a contract that went down. I should, I guess, know more of the details if I am going to talk about it at length. But nonetheless, I know the basics, and the basics is that you have a building that was a public building – that then this so-called public-private partnership moves in and contractors and company, they want to hold events here and have a liquor license and sell alcohol. And it, it gets back to a global phenomena that of neoliberalism, of turning the commons into private entities to then exploit and commodify. 
And that's a big deal. Uh, obviously, globally, we know that this is a huge thing, and this is one of the key components to neoliberalism. But we see it at the local level, and yet people at the local level don't talk about it in the same terms that we talk about it on a global scale. So that's one of our challenges. You know, people are seeing this and they're going, wait a minute, you're giving uh, private land to, or public land, I'm sorry, to a private entity so this private entity can make money. How does that benefit the public? I mean, of course, the answer is that it doesn't. But, you know, if we can get... The thing here, let me back up. There, a lot of people, uh, locally at least, feel as if they're under the gun with and with regard to development. So there's also another project that someone had mentioned today. Let me see if I can pull it up. But we have this nice hill over by the dunes. I forget what they. I think it's Bismarck Hill. I'll find out in a second here. But it, let's, for the sake of conversation here, there's a huge hill by the dunes. There's already a zoo there, which is absurd. I don't think we need to get into why zoos are bad, but I mean, <laughs> um, anyway, so there's a hill. People want to develop it, but the development idea, again, this public-private partnership is that they're going to use grants and tax write-offs and credits and all of the rest to put in some zip lines and a couple of cabins for people to camp in the summertime. So not only are we going to destroy some more trees, destroy the natural environment in a place that already has very limited green space. So there's very few lands left here in town that are untouched or virtually untouched. And yet here we are again talking about another so-called public-private partnership to build what? A couple of zip lines and some goddamn cabins, I think a half dozen. So yuppies from Illinois and rich families and their kids can come down here and enjoy this quaint little town before heading back to the city. Now, what kind of jobs will a zip line and some log cabins provide the people of Michigan City? The town, of course, will argue, oh, it's the much-needed revenue. We need revenue. Well, yes, they, they do indeed need revenue. Uh, and the way they could get that revenue would be to tax the rich and to tax the many multinational corporations who operate in Michigan City. But we haven't quite broached that yet. There is still this false notion that all of our destinies are intertwined, that we're all in this together. The local uh, business owner, the local butcher, the uh, local janitor, the uh, local whoever that... All of these folks are sort of in this together. That's not the case. There are people with varying interests. Um, and 
those interests are determined by any number of things, but oftentimes those interests will be in conflict with one another. Um, my interests, again, are not the same as, say, the small business owner across the street. And that's okay rough in the short term. In the short term, you figure out ways to navigate those interests and do the best we can to make sure that everyone can do well. But when push comes to shove, people will stand up for different interests. So when we eventually get to the point where we can fight for a higher minimum wage here in Michigan City, there will be business owners who maybe we work together today on a couple issues or on a few issues, but who tomorrow we could be very well at each other's throats because of those different interests. And recognizing those different interests are is extremely important. And that's not to say that all of these small business owners that I'm encountering as I become more and more engaged and involved with local politics are bad people. That's not the case. A lot of them are actually pretty decent people on a personal level. But that doesn't change the fact that our interests are drastically different. And you will notice that throughout your educational experience in the United States and in the mainstream media as well, the two words that you will hear very often are interests and power. And coincidentally, those just so happen to be the two most important aspects in society is power and interests. And both have a direct influence over each other and hence on us, especially those of us who can't exercise power uh, on any meaningful scale. And I think that's the vast majority of people in society as long as they remain uh, unorganized. So we had a recent situation here across the street. We have a community resource center for the impoverished, for homeless people, for uh, those who are experiencing drug addiction and alcoholism. And many local business owners came out and to the local community meeting and badgered the uh, employees of this particular community center. And the whole time, of course, people from the community center are offering an olive branch. You know, they're saying, hey, we get it, okay? There's Some of your customers don't like the fact that there's homeless people walking around smoking cigarettes and, okay, you know. A lot of this, of course, is perception. So that's the bigger issue at the end of the day. It's not that you're more at risk here at this block. In fact, the chief of police mentioned before the meeting that the 1700 to 1800 block here in Franklin Street is no more dangerous than any other comparable area in the city. Yet business owner after business owner stood up or raised their hand and said that either they or their customers were frightened by the sight of homeless people. That, of course, is an irrational fear because as I just mentioned, and as the police chief mentioned, there's absolutely no evidence to show that you should be any more scared of being in this block than any other block in Michigan City. 
But again, it brings up more important points, deeper points about society, how we live as a community, and how do we treat those who are the most disadvantaged and vulnerable. Those are important questions. I think those are the most important questions we can ask as a society. We'll work together when we can work together. That's important. The best we can do. But I don't, you know, the thing is, folks, what's going to happen? I mean, the global economy is going to continue to fail. I I think everyone knows that. The environment is going to continue to be destroyed. Racial and ethnic segregation is going to continue to be more and more pronounced. Institutional racism will become more pronounced. There will be increased militarism. I mean, these trends, it's very clear where the world is heading, I think, in some ways. And I think it's also, it's even more clear where the United States is heading. So what happens when there's another recession? Because it is going to happen. What happens if there's some kind of ecological calamity? What happens if there's another when there's another major terrorist attack. Let's say some of those things happen at the same time. Let's say there's a major ecological crisis or ecological crises that take place at the same time as, say, another economic recession, maybe even a depression. Are local communities able to insulate themselves from such developments? Are we uh, ready to deal with those developments? I would argue the answer to those questions is unfortunately a resounding no. To be fair, the communities that are organized and for lack of a better term have their shit together, they will weather the storm better than most. I think preparing for the future is important. You can't predict the future, but you can look at the writing on the wall and determine that if things don't drastically change for the better, that's not going to just happen out of nowhere. That's going to take hard work and organization. And if those things don't exist or if they don't take place quick enough, then we will endure a very, very, very chaotic situation here in the United States, especially, but also around the world. But for the sake of our conversation, actually, no, let's talk about wherever you are in the world. You know, what what kind of local economies can we build that are detached from the bigger economic systems that continue to screw people over and create chaos, destroy the environment, and so on? Are those questions that small business owners and people are asking, or do they just expect the state government to pick up the slack? Because in a state like Indiana where there's extremely regressive social policies and economic policies, there will be no state apparatus mechanisms to deal with the crises that are on the horizon. They simply don't exist. So we, those of us who are organizing, have to create them. That's up to us. But people become, you know, people are very intimidated by that kind of a conversation. People are very intimidated by that prospect. 
People have been told that their ideas don't matter. People have been told, oh, there's elite planners that will make those decisions. There are people with many, many letters in front or behind their name that will make those decisions. Not you, you, you you worker, you gas station attendant, you server, you bartender. You don't have anything interesting to say. And if you do have something interesting to say, we will make sure to either beat that out of your head with propaganda and nonsense, or we will convince you that what you have that is interesting to say is simply not, quote-unquote, reasonable. That I see all the time. So people who know better than most, you know, let's say low-wage worker working two or three jobs, knows there's no way you can survive off of 725 an hour. And yet when they bring this up in a public forum or say at the city hall, they're immediately told or shouted down sometimes, but they're immediately at least told by public officials or business owners or whoever, oh, sir, that's not, that's not reasonable. And that's if you, that's if these people even come to the conclusion that they're right, you know, so, Hey, this person probably can't survive off of 725 an hour. However, it's just not reasonable for us to raise the minimum wage. That's different than even say the folks who would argue, well, too bad that the minimum wage is low. You put yourself in this position. So now you got to deal with it. Take some responsibility. The old American mantra. So anyway, the question becomes, what kind of ethics and morals principles can we create and instill in our society? And can we do so in an effective and interesting way? Because that's the other thing. I mean, I've had plenty, as my friend Michael will say, you know, don't bring me if the, don't, please don't bring me to the first event being some kind of speaking gig or some boring event lecture or whatever. Let's, uh you're going to bring me to an event for your organization or your space, bring me to something that's interesting. Bring me to something that, you know, might get me excited. Anyway, folks, we're running up towards the end of the program here. I got a few minutes. I want to inform you of a few events and particularly one that's taking place tomorrow. I already plugged my event. So now it's time to plug Kim's event. All right, folks, for those who are listening, please pass this information along. Dr. Kim Sipes, our good friend, will be giving a presentation called A History of Social Movements. This is tomorrow, April 4th, at Gelsosimo's Pizzeria in Chesterton, Indiana. That's Gelsosimo's Pizzeria, Chesterton, Indiana, tomorrow, Tuesday, April 4th, Dr. Kim Sipes, A History of Social Movements, 7 p.m. Check it out. It'll be a great presentation, I promise you. Now, there's a few other events before our next meeting, so I, or before our next show, so I want to mention these as well. Start by Believing Rally. This is hosted by the Fairhaven Center for Women, Thursday at 6 p.m. at 3001 Ridge Road in Highland. Come help the Fairhaven Center for Women kick off the Sexual Assault Awareness Month with our first Start by Believing Rally. Speaking will be members of our Lake County SART. Light refreshments will be served featuring the clothesline project and campaign posters from some local high school students. So again, that's April 6th on Thursday at 6 p.m. in Highland. Start by Believing Rally. Also, 
on Friday, another very important event, the No Ban, No Wall Prayer Vigil and Protest at the Gary International Airport. This is Friday, April 7th from 10 a.m. until noon at the Gary International Airport. The Gary International Airport has been engaged in deportations for the entire greater Chicago area for over 11 years. That is the issue that local organizers and protesters are addressing. This event is hosted by Northwest Indiana Resistance. That's NWI Resistance for those on Facebook. So that's Friday, April 7th at 10 a.m. at the Gary International Airport. And then the last event I have for you is the Union Station Cleanup hosted by the Decay Devils. That's April 8th, the next day, Saturday at 9 a.m. till 1 p.m. And that's at Union Station in Gary, Indiana. Come one, come all, and bring a friend or two. Join us in our efforts to preserve this historical landmark. We will clean the grounds and prepare for an assortment of murals, recreational space, and landscaping. Please dress accordingly, and don't forget old shoes. All right, folks. Well, that went a lot quicker than I had thought it would, like it usually does. But in any case, uh, it's been great talking to you. Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy the weekend. Hopefully, I will see you out at some of these events locally. For those listening nationally and internationally, I look forward to learning more about your events online. I always get stuff sent to me in the email and so on. Check us out at Facebook at Vince Emanuele or our Facebook page at Meditations and Molotovs. And you can find us here next Monday at 1 p.m. on the Progressive Radio Network. So good talking to you folks, and I look forward to speaking with... Oh, next Monday we will have Dar Jamail on the program, the war reporter and top environmental reporter for Truth Out. We will be talking about climate change in his most recent research. So I look forward to speaking to you then. Until then, keep listening to the Progressive Radio Network and enjoy the rest of your week. Simply what it is.